Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, Help us now to understand it clearly as we read 1 Thessalonians. Amen. Hey guys, Um, today's Bible reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 16. So if you could grab out your Bibles or your phones, that would be great, or you could follow up on the screen. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and had been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we, de- we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, welcome once again to public meetings. If I've not met you before, my name is Paddy uh, and this is the second in a three-week series of talks that we're doing in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, If you're a mathematician, you'll be distracted by that, but most of us won't be because it's just hieroglyphics. Uh, Before we get into the... (laughs) Before we get... It's all Greek to me. Uh, Before we get into... I thought I'd just uh, make just a bit of a point about annual conference... And that is that um, if Anna was still here, then I think I would honestly deserve to win the prize. And I I say this partly boastfully, but just in all sort of genuine humility. Uh, I worked out the other day, I worked out the other day that I have spent half a year of my life living at Maru. And for those of you who don't know what Maru is, it's the place where annual conference is. Um, And that's just between being a student and a staff worker at various universities and going to annual conferences or mid-year conferences or the like. So uh, if you'd like me to try and persuade you to go to annual conference, then I'm probably the person to try and avoid because I will be very, very persuasive, uh, having invested half a year of my life going to annual conference. 
here's my word to you. My suggestion to you is in thinking about annual conferences, be an adult in your decision making. Like genuinely be an adult in your decision making. Uh, this is a moment for you to just keep stepping into maturity and make decisions as an adult rather than as you may have made decisions like a child. Uh, the reason why I say this is because um, uh, the EU would, like to, would love to encourage all of you to spend the week at annual conference, but we are not going to compel you or force you to come, genuinely. And if it does sound like that, then I want to say, look, I'm really sorry if sometimes some of our senior leaders or maybe some of our staff are maybe a little bit overzealous in terms of trying to get people there. It is genuinely driven by good motive. And when you actually talk to the people who are trying to encourage you to be there, I, I hope you will see that. So I want to say to you, be an adult in your decision-making about choosing to come to annual conference. Uh, those who have been will generally testify that it is actually a really life-changing, significant week. But if you're not persuaded about that, which is why you've not yet committed to come, then actually ask the questions that you need to ask to have your concerns sort of ameliorated or rectified or have your questions answered. I remember when I went to my first mid-year conference, I was a little bit unsure about what was going to take place. At that point, I was going to a small church. There's about 35 people on Sunday. They knew me and I knew them. And the thought of actually going away with several hundred people was just actually a bit unnerving. Now, admittedly, I was a bit of an extrovert, so part of me was really looking forward to it, but part of me was actually going, I just don't know if that's going to be for me. And so I asked my questions. I wanted to know how much it was going to cost. I asked questions like, was I going to be in a room with people I know? Well, I actually know people there. Or will I just sort of be thrust into this room with several hundred people and have to just sit by myself for the week? So depending on if you're an extrovert or an introvert, go and ask the questions and hopefully your small group leaders or the staff will actually be able to help address some of those questions. In all of these things, I say, be an adult in your decision-making. And once you commit to coming to annual conference, then be an adult and follow through. Let your yes be yes. If you've already committed to something else in that week, it might be, say, a holiday with your parents and that's already been booked in, then my suggestion is if you're unable to remove yourself from that yes, then commit to going. But keep in mind that when you say yes to something over here, you will have said no to something over here. And that's okay, actually. That's what life's about. Being an adult in life is actually about making decisions, weighing the options and saying yes to some things and saying no to other things. So if then in second semester, if you don't come to annual conference this year because you've gone away with your family, and I hope that's genuinely a, a, an enjoyful and restful time. But next year, maybe you need to get into the conversation with the family earlier in the pieces they're starting to book the holiday. To say, actually, you know what, this year, can we, I'd still love to come away with you because you pay for everything, but... <laughs> oh, look, you know it to be true. Could we maybe come back a week earlier so I can actually get to annual conference this year? Or would you mind if I left a week earlier so I can get to annual conference? And that is an adult conversation to have. So if you've already said yes and committed to something this year, then you may have already committed, in which case you'll miss out. That's the reality, actually. You can't say yes to everything. If you've not yet committed to something, my suggestion here is be an adult in your decision-making. If you want to come and talk to me about that, you can, and I will try and persuade you to say yes to coming to annual conference. I'm just being very upfront about that. But in the end, I'm going to say, actually, you be an adult. You make the decision. Don't let me make the decision for you. You make the decision for yourself. But I thoroughly endorse it and encourage you to be there. I think the week will be really significant for you as we teach the Bible. Okay? And so now as we turn to 1 Thessalonians, uh, let's try and have a look at what this particular passage says. Uh, I'm going to try and work our way through chapter 2 and chapter 3 this week. And last week I suggested that there were three big ideas going on in 1 Thessalonians. One of those big ideas was that uh, Jesus is coming back again. The second big idea that it was then going to be a time when God would save his people and save them, thirdly, from the wrath that is to come. 
If we rightly understand that this is the God's plan for the world, then I want to suggest to you that this should inform our vision for the world, that we might rightly see the world and live rightly in it between now and when the Lord comes back again. The question that I left you with last week, which you may or may not have considered in the last week is, have you been converted? Have you actually turned to God from the idols that you're worshipping and is life lived differently now? Are you longing for and looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus? Well, today we're going to spend some time looking at the Apostle Paul and his motivation uh, for the way in which he preaches and also Paul when he is when he was with the Thessalonians and when he is away from them. One of the things that we know about uh, Paul as we read through this letter to the Thessalonians and also as we saw in Acts chapter 17, Paul has a particular vision for the people in the church at Thessalonica. And his vision is driven by his priorities and his right understanding that the Lord is coming back again. That there is an assurance of salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul has a passion that people might turn and in doing so avoid the wrath of God that is to come. Now the question here is, will we take Paul at his words? See, when Paul writes to us this particular letter, it's not just a historical account of the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians, it is that, but actually it's also Paul expressing his God-given, God-delegated apostolic authority and his letter carries that weight. And if, unless you're ethnically Jewish, which there may be some in the room, in God's good plan, Paul is the one to whom the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And that's us, if we're not ethnically Jewish. Paul is our apostle, as much as he was the apostle to the church in, the, in, the Thess- in Thessalonica. So the question is, will we actually take Paul at his word? Because when he speaks as an apostle, he speaks the word of God. Now, as you read through the letter, and some of you may be working through this letter in some of our senior Bible study groups, I hope that you've noticed and appreciated that when Paul writes, he writes with sort of over 20 expressions towards his hearers, this early church that he only founded in three weeks. And I can't remember if I said last week, but I'm going to show you anyway. I have some slides, but there's no clicker, so I'm just going to stand here. Uh, we've done that. Done, oh, talk. There you go. That's talk. What's the slide? Uh, th- uh, this, is, this is Thessalonica. I had the great privilege of being there about seven years ago. Uh, my wife, who is far smarter than me, uh, was invited to go and present a paper at a conference, so I dutifully said, well, I guess I'll ca- come and carry your bags for you if that's going to be okay. <laughs> Uh, this is the photo from our hotel room. This is not what it was like about 2,000 years ago when Paul was there, by the way. You know, yeah, for those in the room, I'm old, I'm not that old. Um, uh, when we were there, it was Greece in the middle of summer, so it was like 35 degrees. So she would dutifully go off to this conference. I had a really hard five days in, in, in this hotel, actually, five-star, air-conditioned, swanning around in the rooftop pool. I wrote some Ancon talks as well, uh, but anyway... Uh, I went for a walk one day and this is sort of the, uh, the current city. You can see it's on a port city. Uh, on the right-hand side there you can see the image. The, the, the smaller, the, the original part of Thessalonica was surrounded by a wall actually and this is some remnants of the old wall. And notice also uh, that in the sort of central marketplace, and I'll show you some photos of that in a minute, they've put up this particular plaque or this sign indicating the connection with the Apostle Paul and you'll see there sort of about halfway through uh, that particular slide you can see there he preached, that's Paul, preached Christianity in Thessaloniki's Greek-speaking Jewish community, a city with a strong pagan character in the middle of the first century, about AD 50. Uh, the Agora, which is this sort of public space, which I will show you, um, uh, Paul, in the next sort of paragraph, visited the site and asked to preach at the Agora's podium. Oh, I'm not sure if that's actually historically true. It may be. I, I can't find any particular evidence for it. Uh, but notice what 
whoever's written this describes, his request was denied, though as the pagan element held strong within the city. Well, actually, we know that from Acts chapter 17, when we looked at last week, because they raised a whole mob to try and basically beat him out of the city. Anyway, Paul, even if he was refused their invitation, decided to speak. Oh, this is a sort of a piece of artwork showing the sort of Roman forum of uh, Thessaloniki. Uh, the section um, with the sort of the rounded amphitheatre, which is on your right-hand side, still is in a bit of existence. And this is one particular section of it. Even in a 35-degree day, this actually section, because most of it's actually underground, was about 16 to 18 degrees. Really, actually quite cool and quite nice. Uh, this is the end of the sort of amphitheatre. Uh, the columns and uh, arches that you see in the middle are part of the original sort of agora and the large open area about the size of a fairly standard football field was presumably where they had lots of markets, not unlike a marketplace today. I must admit it was a little bit surreal just sort of walking over this place thinking actually this is probably where the Apostle Paul walked. Now they don't have the footsteps, it's not as if you can actually sort of walk in the footsteps of Paul and go, wow, he's a pretty tall bloke, he's got big strides. <laughs> But I must admit it was a bit surreal as you walk around here thinking actually this would have been the place where Paul maybe sought to speak and persuade the people who would be sitting there and arguing about the latest idea. You can imagine, can't you, that as Paul walks around if there was a synagogue in a close vicinity and they don't exactly know where the synagogue was, Paul starts speaking and a commotion arises somewhere in the marketplace and this is where they sort of round up the rabble from the marketplace to then go and drag Paul out of Jason's house and it just all felt a little bit surreal walking around. But the reality there is that Paul comes to Thessalonica and despite all of the suffering, continues to preach and be concerned for the church that he leaves. So over the next 20 minutes or so, you can see here what I'm going to talk about is Paul's motivation, Paul when he is with them and Paul when he is apart from them. What is it that motivates Paul despite the fact that he was nearly or basically chased out of the city when he preaches? What is it that motivates Paul full well knowing that when he declares Jesus is Lord, he's risen from the dead... It actually opens him up, potentially, for suffering. Well, there's two reasons here. Firstly, because Paul has been approved by God. Paul's motivation is driven by the fact that he's been given a significant approval and it's the approval of God himself. In Galatians chapter 1, when Paul reflects on his uh, sort of commissioning by the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the implications of that in Galatians 1, he says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ." What Paul is doing in the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead has the highest approval from God himself. And this is the gospel that Paul himself has been entrusted with. This then not only provides us for an understanding of Paul's motivation, but also helps us understand the content of the gospel message that Paul preaches. In this case, the gospel message is not something that Paul needed to create or be judged by, by any other human individual. Rather, it is the unchanging message that requires diligent and faithful declaration. Now, Paul here, in the beginning of chapter 2, when we look at his motivation, I think beautifully captures his own intent. 
for his time in this early church in Thessalonica. He states clearly his agenda. It is actually other person centred. Now, you can imagine the possibility that Paul and his caravan sort of roll into town. They set up their big banner. Apostle Paul Ministries Incorporated. The turnstiles are set up and you pay your money to go in and listen to this famous orator speak. And along the way, you're trying to persuade, you're trying to be persuaded to buy his books, to maybe pay royalties for his visit, and maybe even Paul charge conversion fees. Imagine how successful he would have been. The whole city had heard of him, we're told in Acts chapter 17. We don't know exactly how many hundreds, thousands or tens of thousands were converted directly or indirectly because of his ministry. Paul arguably could have become very, very wealthy as a result of proclamation. But no, Paul clearly states his agenda. Paul here says he does it because he's speaking on behalf of one who has a much higher authority. It's God. And he speaks not to please man or for selfish gain or ambition, but actually to please God because he has been approved and entrusted by him. Uh, Notice also in chapter 2, if you've got it open, some of the other things we see about Paul's motivation. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that he is bold. He doesn't place his dependence on even the, the approval that he's given nor does he trust in his own capacity or skill. In fact, elsewhere, say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, some might have accused Paul of not actually being that good an orator. For Paul, he doesn't actually care about that. Paul is bold in God. He trusts in God. His dependence is in God. Notice there a little bit later on in chapter 2, verse 4. Who is it that Paul is seeking to please? As we've already seen, he's seeking to please God, not man. He's not seeking the approval of mankind. No, what he's doing is he's confronting people in their disobedience towards God. I suspect any time you confront someone else in their disobedience, that's always going to be a bit of an uncomfortable conversation. Paul knows that's what the Gospel does, actually. The Gospel, in its message, in its nature, when spoken correctly, confronts disobedience, both for those who are genuinely out of relationship with God, but actually also for believers who have become in relationship with God, yet are still not fully obedient to God. But Paul here says he's not trying to please man. No, he's pleasing God. Notice the manner in which he comes in chapter 2 verse 5. He doesn't come with flattering speech. He doesn't use particular rhetorical devices. No, he entrusts himself to the power of the word of God. Which is why some may have assumed that his speech seemed very plain. Not particularly very eloquent. But as we, see, as we saw last week, chapter 1, the power of the Word of God comes with power itself, a work of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 5, we see a bit more of Paul's being motive being fleshed out. He doesn't come, it's not one of greed, as we've said earlier. There would have been other orators of the day who would have travelled around to various cities. They would have spoken about a particular topic or an idea and as long as people would keep throwing money at them, they would probably stay until they'd run out of things to say and then they'd go on to the next city. And because there's no messaging or Facebook or social media or anything like that, when they turn up, even in the neighbouring city, probably what they were going to say was all new. And that's actually how they lived, actually. That's how they found their living. Paul also there in chapter 2, verse 5 says he's not keen on being glorified by man. He doesn't seek the glory of man. This is Paul as he is when he gospels, when he goes out to proclaim the Lord Jesus. 
Well, I think the question for us is, as we seek to try and do that, what is our gospeling like? Do we have the same motives? Do we recognise that it's God's gospel, it's not something we need to make up? Well, if you firstly understand that, it should give you great confidence. If you can speak the word of God to someone, then let the word of God do its work. You actually don't need to be that much of an impressive person. Trust that the word of God is powerful and will do its work. But for some of us, unlike Paul, I think we tend to remain a little bit silent because we are genuinely fearful of persecution. And I think the persecution, by observation in our country, is less the physical persecution that our brothers and sisters often experience overseas and the threat and consequence of physical death. I think the persecution we're afraid of is ridicule, exclusion, lack of friendship. The question is, are you willing to preach the life-saving word of God even if it comes at that cost? Well, how is Paul when he is with them? Well, Paul here writes to the church. That's what the letter is about. And Paul describes how he was when he was with them. Notice even back in chapter 2, verse 1, you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. Even though he was only there for maybe three weeks, even in such a short space of time, much is learnt by those early Thessalonian Christians. Much is received by them as they start to understand, as, remember, last week Paul was, seeking to prove and demonstrate that the Messiah was to come and that Christ was this Messiah. Much is experienced as they come into Christian fellowship and live in Christian community. Much is felt in terms of a deepening of relationship between them, other new converts and Paul. Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't come up with a five to ten year strategic plan. It's not as if he's got his big map out. He's going to all of his benefits. Let's head to Thessalonica. So I need to send an advance party. You can go and scout out the lie of the land. We'll get there in two or three years' time. We'll make sure we've got enough money so we'll develop a good strategic plan and we'll build a great team. And when we get there, we're going to put down deep roots and within five years, we'll have a thousand-seat agora already built for us. And we'll... No, no, Paul, Paul, in some senses, you're just your typical itinerant. He turns up in a place... And even if he's only going to be there for three weeks, what does he do? He declares the life-saving word of God. He preaches faithfully and prays and seeks that people would be converted. The reason why Paul does this, I take it, is because he knows and is driven by the reality of God's vision for the world that the Lord may come back any day. Friends, I think this should heighten our urgency in our conversation with our friends. I think sometimes we think, oh... I'm still not really well equipped to have that conversation. In which case, the EU offers lots of opportunities for you to get better equipped. I don't think I know them well enough. When will you know them well enough? I'm only in first year. We're going to be in the same course right through until fourth year, so I'll wait until second semester of fourth year. We've all thought it, even though we laugh about it. That's great if the Lord's coming back first year out of uni and you actually get to the conversation and God in his kindness chooses to save them. But if the Lord comes back at the end of this year, then your friend has a problem unless the Lord has raised up someone else to tell them the gospel. So I think here, let's feel the urgency actually 
of speaking the Word of God as we are able. And while we're here at uni, make the most of the opportunities about getting trained and equipped to keep preaching well. Uh, Notice also the example of Paul. When Paul is with them, he sets them an example. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. The example that Paul sets them is very tangible. He lives with them for three weeks, but he's continually trying to emulate the way in which Jesus lived. Uh, You see it back in chapter 1 verse 5, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Not for Paul's sake, not for Paul's glory. No, for the sake of the Thessalonians. What example are you following? Whose example are you following? Are you following the example of your parents? Have you, do you watch their manner of living and go, oh, I, I really like that, that's attractive? Or maybe you look at some other things and go, yeah, I, that's not really very attractive, I'm not going to be like that? Do you maybe uh, follow and look up to your older siblings, for those of you who have got older siblings? Do you maybe just follow the peers? Are they setting you a bit of an example in your peer group, be they Christian or not Christian? Whose example are you following? Are you genuinely following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you aware of, perhaps more mature, older, maybe even just older in the faith, brothers and sisters, maybe in your local church, who are genuinely trying to follow the example of Christ and pointing you to him? In which case, if you know of people like that, it may be your local church pastor, it may be your Bible study leader in local church, can I encourage you to weigh against Scripture whether or not they are a good example to follow? And pray that they would keep setting a good example until the Lord returns. Now, I want to suggest that the EU is not a church, but it is a very temporary and possibly transitory Christian community while you're here on campus. Who are the people who you will follow? If you're in maybe the more senior years in the EU, are you setting a good example for first and second years? Every year, the first years turn up, and if you come to annual conference... I think I'm doing it again. First year afternoon, we have first year afternoon tea. I'll let you in on a little secret, okay? Basically, what I say at the first year afternoon tea is exactly the same every year. Why does it need to change? And one of the things I say is, before too quickly, you will realise as first years that you'll be in fourth year and you'll be about to leave uni. And if you're in first year, you may have done this yet. They're going, oh, that's going to be ages away. And then when I speak to you in fourth year, you go, actually, wow, yeah, that time went really, really quickly. So if you're in first year, who are the examples you're going to follow? If you're in your final years, what example are you setting for first and second years? Just in your manner of living, in the way in which you behave with each other in your small groups, in your faculties and the like. See, Paul here is keen to remind his hearers and his companions that the lifestyle that they lived while they were with the Thessalonians is very important. And here, as a bit of an aside, is the words that we speak to proclaim Jesus are very important. We need to work hard at making sure we know the gospel and can articulate it. But our manner of life, in many respects, is just as important. Our manner of life is not the means by which someone gets saved. Not as if, sort of, you know, you're being a very godly person and your classmate is sitting with you in a tute and going, you know what, I can sort of sense that maybe this person who's sitting next to me, I should become a Christian. Trust me, friends, conversion doesn't work that way. Conversion happens when the Word of God is proclaimed The Lord works powerfully through his spirit and the word and people actually are convicted of their sin and turn back to God from serving idols. But I tell you what, the manner of our living is really very important. Complete aside, but I think it's helpful to hear. 
um, I caught up with um, one of our ministry apprentices who bumped into one of their lecturers from a couple of years ago because they were a student here on campus. And that lecturer has now become a Christian. They used to be a staunch atheist, so praise God for that. It's really very exciting. That's not the aside. Um, (laughs) The lecturer, when asked how they found people who are in the EU, said, gee, they were very disrespectful in my class. I don't know who it was. And I genuinely winced as I was talking to one of our ministry apprentices about this and thought, oh, gee, that's really bad. So can I please urge you and encourage you that when you're in class to not be disrespectful? Sure, engage and engage robustly, but actually your manner of relating to people in your classes, people will watch you, particularly if they know you're a Christian. Even more so if you wear a green shirt. So please wear the green shirt and be bold. See, the example that we give is actually very important to people, both to our Christian brothers and sisters, but actually also to the world. Notice what Paul does. Uh, Paul also says that the example that he gave was as a parent. So you see this in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He's very affectionate and gentle towards them as a mother would be. And then in verses t- uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, as a father would be. He cares for them as parents care for their own, ch- own children. And finally, Paul also says that actually when he is with them, he is keen to not be a burden on them. Presumably he's been living in Jason's house for a couple of weeks. That would be a weird experience, wouldn't it? You're Jason, you're just sort of wandering around in the marketplace selling stuff. Some guy comes up to you and says, hey, did you know that Jesus, that bloke, did you hear about Jesus, the Nazarene, he's risen from the dead and he's Lord and Christ. And you have this conversation with, you're Jason, you have this conversation with Paul and you're persuaded and you become a believer. And Paul says, so I'm looking for somewhere to stay. Can I come and stay at your house? And you go, sure, why not? And three weeks later, this mob come up to your door and demand that they, they drag Paul out. Like you can imagine what it would have been like for Jason. But Paul is very keen here, chapter 2, verse 8, be ready to share both the gospel and life. Chapter 2, verse 9, do not be a financial burden on people, but in this case, Paul works to support himself. So that's how Paul, when he is with them, Paul, when he is apart from them. Uh, Notice here that even when Paul is no longer living with them, he still eagerly desires to know how they're going. Uh, The last part of chapter 2 and the early part of chapter 3 helps us understand this which is one of the reasons why he writes to them because he is concerned for their well-being. In verse 18, he genuinely wants to get back to see them, but Satan has somehow hindered that from happening. I'm not exactly sure what this actually means. I've got some theories, but it's fairly speculative. I think what we can do here is that Paul recognises, firstly, the existence of spiritual powers. Therefore, we should also. Paul clearly sees that Satan not only exists, but has some capacity to work in the world because he gives Satan some agency. Now, how exactly does Satan work in the world? The scriptures don't tell us much, other than Satan acts through deception and encouraging individuals to be tempted away from trusting God's good word for them and following after God. And I wonder if that's what Paul is alluding to here, that in some way Satan has tempted individuals away from trusting God and in doing so, their lifestyle is one which is now against God's good command for them. Which is why the mob gets raised up, they actually go with harmful and violent intent to try and actually stop Paul from what he's doing. I think that's probably the way in which um, Paul has been prevented from getting there. So Paul is really keen to see them again. Notice what he says there in uh, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory 
and our joy. In the light of all of these things, Paul is keen to see this group of people because he glories in and finds joy in the fact, not that just they're an individual group of people and they're a really nice group and no, actually it's not that they spent it three weeks together. Imagine Ancom was three weeks together. Can you imagine that? Not just a week, three weeks. No, actually it's because Paul actually knows that they've been converted, that they now trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and are looking for his return. This is the thing that Paul places his hope joy and this is the thing that he boasts in. So I want to suggest that sometimes we place our future in the hands of things or achievements, milestones in life and yet for Paul the certainty of salvation is grounded in relationship and those relationships give tangible expression to the salvation of God seen most clearly in salvation. So you can imagine Paul's loss at not being able to get back to the church And also, I take it, Paul has a concern that perhaps the ongoing suffering in Thessalonica may have been a catalyst to have the faith of the Thessalonian church weakened. So what does he do? He sends Timothy back to see them. Now here, Paul recognises that suffering is a present age reality. Paul has already suffered, the Thessalonians suffer, and notice in chapter 2 verse 14, the suffering that the Thessalonians undergo is similar to the churches in Judea at the hands of of their countrymen. The suffering is similar to the suffering that was undertaken by the prophets and by Jesus himself. Suffering in the life of the believer may be a reality. Are you prepared for that? Because it may come. Anyway, so while Timothy is gone, Paul's concern is that suffering will have been a catalyst. But notice what happens. Do you notice this? In chapter 3, verse 6, But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. When Timothy comes, he gospels. He just declares this grand announcement. He comes to Timothy saying, he comes to Paul saying, not, did you know that Jesus is Messiah and risen from the dead? Gospel is just a grand announcement. No, Timothy now comes to say to Paul, actually the Thessalonians miss you just as much as they do. And actually, they're doing really, really well. And so you see here, Paul's emotional state changes. It brings him such great comfort that the Lord has been preserving his people through suffering. And so notice what does Paul do? There is nothing more that he can do other than praising God. And so he does that in verses 11 to 13 in this short little sort of doxological moment. The doxology is really just like a, a short hymn of praise offered to God. uses it to remind us, his hearers, and the Thessalonians, how thankful he is to God for them. Well, what do we do with this particular couple of chapters? Well, first thing I think we are ought to reflect on Paul as our apostle. This is the individual who proclaimed the gospel fearlessly, faithfully, and suffered much for it. Would we do a similar thing? Would we be prepared to suffer for the faith? Would we be prepared to gospel in the manner and with the same motive that Paul did? Will we look to those who are examples for us that as we follow them, they would be pointing us to Jesus? Will we be great examples as life goes on, as we follow the Lord Jesus and point others to him? And finally, do we have the same hope and joy about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus that Paul did. For that is the thing that will actually drive our motives 
and our vision for our life between now and when he returns. I'm going to hand back to Jack, who's going to pray for us. Thanks, Freddie. A couple of things before um, we finish up. Um, afternoon tea is going to be run a bit differently today. So if you're a first-timer at Ancon, um, Afternoon tea for you will be down there um, at the entrance to the lecture theatre. I'll be there, so if you don't know anyone, come and say hi to me. I'd love to meet you. Um, Ancon Warrior Shack will be at the door to take you down there um, to show you if you don't know where to go. Everyone else, afternoon tea will be over at the Law Lawns um, as well. If it's your first time at a public meeting, um, please let one of the welcome people know, and they'd love to give you a welcome pack. Um, But before we finish, um, please pray with me. Dear God, thank you for the life of Paul and the encouragement he is to be a disciple of your son. Help our motivation to proclaim your gospel, to persist despite suffering, as you've commissioned us to tell all of your gospel that you've entrusted to us. Help us to hear, learn and respond to your word like the Thessalonians, knowing and understanding the imminent reality of your return. We pray that we will love and care for those um, who we preach your saving grace to and will not be a burden to them. Let us not forget what drives our hope and joy, and that is the death and resurrection of your Son. We pray these things in your name. Amen.